Good morning, everyone. Good morning. The 11 o'clockers are here. It's good to have you with us today. You got to sleep in a little bit this morning. Anyone appreciate that, that sleep in a little bit? It's good. Some of you are looking around the room going, hey, I know that person. I haven't seen him in six months, but I know that person. It's okay. It's, it's a time of new beginnings for many of us, right, where we haven't seen the same people. And it's, it's, honestly, it's nice to see some of the faces. In the first service, we saw some people we haven't seen in a very long time, and it was good to be able to see them. And it's good to see you again today. I uh, just wanted to thank you all for being here today. And um, we're just going to get right into it this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1. We are kicking off a series today uh, called Rooted. It is the beginning of looking through the entire book of Romans. There's 16 chapters in the book of Romans, and we are going to walk through the entire chapter, the entire book of Romans in the next upcoming many months. Um, we'll have some breaks in the middle of that for uh, uh, Christmas holidays and some special services and everything, but as we've been preparing this year, um, the second half of this year, because I don't know if you know this, but this year has been really different <laughs> than any other year I've ever experienced. But in the second half of this year, uh, we were talking about what kind of series we would do and, and why we would settle on a book like Romans. And uh, I, I, settled it, I settled it on, on the fact that we are living in a time right now where there is so much that can rock our foundations, so much that can rock what we believe is truth. And if we're not rooted in what matters and what is eternal and what is to, to go on, not just for a few moments, but forever. We will become a product of our culture and we will no longer be defining the culture. We would just be responding to what's happening around us. You know, Jesus talks about houses that are built on sand versus houses that are built on rocks. And Romans, the book of Romans, is one of the greatest books you could study to understand what it looks like for our faith to be rooted and built on the rock of Jesus Christ. The gospel is so much more than just a religion. It's so much more than just some words on a page. It's designed to transform our lives, and that's the way God intended it. It is truth, and if we don't understand the, the, ins, the ins and the outs and the facets of the truth, then we are, we are quick or will be quick to fall over and to be misplaced as everyone tells us what truth really is supposed to look like this day and age. So we're going to be going through this series over the next many months, and I want to encourage you, our, our community groups, Pastor Rob's talked about this, our community groups are all going to be featuring and camping on um, portions of Romans as we are walking as a church on Sundays, we're asking our groups to do that. We're also asking our junior high through senior high students to participate in that as well uh, because we think being grounded and rooted during this time, especially this time of, this, of, of our lives, is super important. And, uh, and I don't want to see people buy into the wrong thing. I don't want to see people not understand what Scripture is supposed to really show them uh, and not know it because we're focusing on the wrong thing. So uh, my hope but I can also say my, my desire uh, is that we would all dig into the book of Romans over the next many months, uh, that we would not just listen to a message on a Sunday morning, but we would actually use the time throughout the weeks to read, to pray, 
to seek what God's plan is for our lives, how this word applies to our lives. And you can do that by following along with our Sunday morning messages. You can also do that by participating uh, in this scripture journal that we created for you guys. There's a a 30-day scripture journal that we've created called um, a 30-day reading plan through Romans. It's not exactly the same passages we're doing every week here, but you can actually take this uh, and you can bring it home and it gives you all the, an area for notes and it's got some scripture that you can read and it also has tools on how to study this, the Bible. You know, a lot of people may have copies of Bibles, but they don't necessarily know how to study the Bible. They don't know that it's not just reading a verse and closing a book and, you know, praying and going, going about your, your way, that there are There's time that you can spend, that you meditate on these things, and it will transform your life. Um, And you can get a copy of this. I was going to say you could have a copy of it today, but every copy we put out was taken in the 9 o'clock service. So you're late, and the early bird catches the worm. You know, so no, what I would say is we didn't intend to actually put them all out in the first service, but we did, and they were taken. But you can go to our website, bridgecomchurch.org, scroll all the way to the bottom of resources, and you have a PDF there that you can print out. We are also going to be printing out more of them for next week and making them available for you as well, if you'd like to follow along. Um, If you're in the book of Romans, we're going to go to chapter one. And before I get started on it, I just want to give a little bit of background of why I think this book is so significant um, and, and why this can change who we are. Um, If you go back to church history and you look a little bit about church history, um, I'm not going to give a lesson in church history today. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert in church history, but I would say I know a little bit about church history. If you go back to the early church, you'll see uh, for the first thousand plus years of the Christian church existence, there was pretty much one type of Christian church. It was the Catholic church, as, as we would call it, the actual Catholic church. In 1054 AD, there was a division that took place um, with uh, details as to why that happened just for another time and another place. But basically, two different components of Christianity emerged from that. The Catholic, the Western Catholic church continued, and then the Eastern Orthodox church came into play in 1054. Um, if you go and fast forward to the 16th century, a man by the name of Martin Luther came on the scene. And some of you know, have heard of the term Martin Luther, or the man Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King. Martin Luther, as a little kid, I always confused the two. Martin Luther, okay, he was in the 16th century, and Martin Luther was a devout Catholic. He loved God. Um, he was passionate about the things of the word. And something happened to Luther in his years, his early years, where he actually read the book of Romans. You see, Scripture wasn't really read by individuals as much back then. They were read, they were, they were taught what the word would say without actually really reading the scripture. Um, and he got a hold of it and he read it in the original language. And he got to a verse in Romans chapter 1 that said, The righteous will live by faith. And it blew up everything he thought about Christianity. Because up until that time, Most of the message that the church was experiencing around salvation was that what we do determines our salvation. Does that make sense? What you do determines if you're saved. How you give determines how close or far away you are from God. What things you sacrifice and give determines whether your sins are forgiven. And there was a whole, um, a whole system of things called indulgences that were put together and different costs for different things. And, and there was very easily an association that was made to that that said, if I want to be seen as right in God's eyes, 
I must do. If I want to be seen as forgiven in God's eyes, I must give. If I want to be seen as sinless in God's eyes, I must serve. I must pay. I must do these different things. And and if we're not careful, that type of mindset leaks into the way the rest of the church actually views Christianity or the world views Christianity. And that actually still exists today. How many times do you know people or how many people have you known? Maybe you have been one of those people over the years that have associated Christianity and the love and the grace that comes from Christianity by what you do. That we earn our way, if you will, to be in the grace of God. And when Luther read Romans and he got to Romans chapter 1 and the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith, everything flipped upside down and the epiphany that he had was that Christianity is not about what man can do for God. It's about what God has already done for man. There's a big difference in this. Now, this doesn't absolve us from responsibility and living for Christ. We're going to talk all about that. But the whole purpose of this book and why it changed it was because it changed the perspective that he viewed the gospel. That it wasn't about me doing everything to be in God's grace. It's what Jesus already did for me to be in God's grace. And all of a sudden, the message of Christianity didn't become about how hard I can work. It's more about how much God loved me to do the thing that I was always and will always be incapable of doing myself. It's a beautiful story, and it changes the way that we view God. It changes the way that I view God. It changed the way that Luther viewed God, so much so that he translated the entire Bible from its original languages into German. And in the preface of his Bible in Romans, he wrote this, it is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. Pretty powerful. It's impossible, he says, for you and I to meditate or to read on this letter too much or too well. That's how much the book of Romans transformed the way he viewed Jesus and the way he viewed the gospel. My hope in us going through this series is that we don't gloss over any of the verses, that we don't gloss over any of the truths, that we don't take a moment to read a verse and then just move on, but we stop, we look, We listen and we invite the Holy Spirit to transform us because there is so much truth in this book that if you are looking to grow closer to God and understand who he is so that it will affect the way that you live, get ready for a great ride. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it also will wreck your heart. In the first service, I would say, first off, I don't know what this service is going to look like, um, but in the first service, I would say you're probably lucky that you didn't show up in the first service because um, I feel like this week going through this service or this, this passage that my heart's been like in a blender, like that God's been using this stuff in the first seven verses and just turning and chewing and, and I'm going, what do I do with this? And having to talk about it when my mind is still trying to process it is not a fun activity. But I'm going to do the best that I can this, af- this afternoon or this morning. Um, I'm just going to say in the first service, you probably got more of like a ADD brain dump uh, than you actually got anything that made a whole lot of sense. So maybe, maybe it was better that you came later today. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to begin uh, reading that, and then I'm going to go back and talk about it. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, 
the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word says that your word is living and active. And I just pray that the words that we read today would not just be words that we speak with our lips or read with our eyes, but they would be planted in our hearts. God, we love you, and I just pray that your spirit would use this truth to touch us, to change us for your kingdom and your will. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Someone once said you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And when you look at the book of Romans, a little background and history on the book and, it's written, and how it was written was authored by the Apostle Paul. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he's a pretty big deal in the New Testament. He penned over two-thirds of the New Testament letters and writings. And Paul was a very, very well-known Hebrew who loved God and was a Pharisee. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome, people that he's never met before, people that he has no relationship to aside from knowing that they've at some point accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they've heard the message of Jesus, they've become followers of Christ, and he's writing to them because of one significant truth. And I want you to just think about this with me for a moment. Imagine, if you will, hearing the message of Christ from people that you didn't know The Holy Spirit revealing the truth to you, making a decision to follow that truth, beginning the journey to walk and having no scripture to help you on the journey. No Bible. There was no Bible. There were Old Testament scriptures, but to most of those people, the Old Testament scriptures would have been considered the Hebrew scriptures, not their scriptures. And there was no New Testament. In fact, the The first book that was written in the New Testament was the book of Romans, even more than any of four of the Gospels. This was the very first book that was written, and Paul penned it to this church because they had no instruction on how to live. And what he did was he penned the most theologically rich and deep book to teach them, now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you an instruction manual. Now, some of you like that term, and others of you resist it. Because not everyone likes to read instruction manuals. A number of years, some of the guys are sitting there like, what's an instruction manual? I don't know what that is. Right? Many years ago when I was making a, um, a small little recording project studio in my basement, I bought a piece of equipment and I opened up the manual and I was reading how to work some of the stuff. And something didn't make sense to me in the book. So I opened it up and I was, it was only a couple pages into it too. It wasn't like, I wasn't on page like 80, 85 or 95. It was on page three or four. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, that doesn't make any sense. So I pick up the phone and I called the company, the manufacturer, and they gave me a tech support guy. And I said, hey, I have a question. What's up? So we talked about it. And I said, what does this mean? I don't understand. There was a pause and then there was just laughter. And I was like, what's, what's so funny? And the guy said, for all the years I've worked here, Not once has anyone ever called me and asked me this question because nobody reads the instruction manual. (laughs) And I said, well, I do. What does it mean? And he said, funny enough, that's wrong. 
It's a typo and we've missed it. And for years we've published it and no one's ever called us to tell us. <laughs> True story. I said, well, I'm reading the instruction manual. He goes, so you're right, actually. We were wrong. Thanks for the correction. We'll correct it sometime later, I guess, so no one else can read. So here's why I'm telling you all this. Because Paul gives us an instruction manual in the writings of the book of Romans. And he teaches us stuff. And this is so important. He teaches every core theological component that we need to know as followers of Christ to not just know who Jesus is, but to know the effects of sin, to know what sin is and what sin isn't, to see who we are without God and who we are with God. He talks to us about justification. When Doug talked about that during communion, about what does it mean to be justified, that God looks at us just as we have never sinned. He talks about righteousness. He talks about how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and all of the gifts that the Holy Spirit empowers us with and can empower us with. Why? For the sake of the body, to build unity, and to grow in spiritual maturity. All of these things. He even talks about how we're supposed to respond to our government leaders. It's wonderful. There's so much stuff in there. And my challenge to you, and as I read this, is to say let's take the time and walk through this book together because there is so much rich information that can lead to transformation if our hearts are willing to go there. So Paul writes this verse or this this letter and he opens with seven verses of introduction that we just read. And just a little side note, the people that wrote the letters of antiquity always wrote with their names and their authorship first because unlike us where we start with, you know, dear John or Jane or dear Sam or whatever, and we sign it at the end, they wrote in scrolls. And when you would write a letter in a scroll, it'd be really hard to figure out who the author was if you had to go through the entire scroll to get to the end and then rewind it all the way. You know, it'd be like a tape recorder trying to go back and forth. So they told everyone right up front who they were. And Paul did a great job at not just introducing himself to this church, but he did a great job at explaining who he was and the authority that came with his apostleship as a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the verses that I'm looking at here in 1 through 7, what you can find and what we will see is there are three main themes that go through the entire book of Romans and they're summarized in these seven verses. If you want to know what the book of Romans is about, you can get it all in these seven verses. Now, that doesn't mean don't read the book. It just means he's saying the summary of what you're about to hear is in seven verses, and it is incredible. And I'm going to show you what those three things are just by going through them briefly this morning. The first thing that he says in his introduction and his writing is he tells these Christians the power of the gospel. He shows them the power of the gospel. You could say, what does that mean and how does that look? Let me explain. He says in verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, servant is synonymous with slave, okay? And we understand the word slave, but the type of slavery that we're talking about during his time is not the kind of slavery that we understand today or any type of slavery that was associated with our country 150 years ago. We're not talking about that. That word servant actually is the word doulos. It's a Greek word doulos, and it's actually more associated with the term bond servant. And there's a difference, and I'll explain why. A slave or a servant, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament, was someone that was usually um, 
in servitude to a master as a result of some type of debt that they owed the person. So if they borrowed something or something happened and they owed a certain amount of money to someone, they had to become a servant to that person. And God shows us in the Old Testament that that, is, that was common and that happened for people. And it wasn't just Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Jewish people could be indentured or a servitude to other Jewish people. But God made a provision to say after six full years of that, on the seventh year, they would be released from whatever debt that they would have. Why? Because his never, he never intended anyone to be in slavery, or you will, indebted to someone forever. That the debt had to be paid, and at some point they could move on and be as free people. But bondservant took it to another step, because if you were a slave, and you worked for a master, and the master cared for you, and was kind to you and supported you and was respectful. You could, you could live your life and your family could live their life under the leadership and guidance of a master. And when your six years came up and you were freed into your seventh year, you had the ability to go back to them and say, you know, we, we really like being in servitude to you. You're, you treat us with respect and kindness and you're loving towards us and, and we, we, we feel this this just sense of, of respect and thankfulness and whatever word you want to put in there, the long story short is they could make a willing choice if they want to submit themselves back to their master for lifelong servitude. And they could say, I want to become a bondservant of you, which means I am now going to serve you, not because I'm obligated, but because I choose to. And if they agreed to that and the master agreed to that, they would have this, this interesting procedure that, you know, they would go down this tradition. They'd go down to the, temp, to the gate of the city and they would take an awl and they would pierce their ear and they'd put something in their ear and they'd tell everybody that was around, this one is my servant by choice, not by obligation. You see, there's a difference. When Paul writes to the people of Rome, he says, I am a bondservant to Jesus Christ. I'm not obligated to follow him. I'm not required by Jesus to follow him. I have chosen to die to myself, lay my life down because of the love that he has demonstrated towards me. I forever give myself to him. See the difference? Isn't it cool? Like that's what he's saying. You could say, well, that's pretty cool, but I mean, so what Paul did that, that's great. Here's why this is so important. Paul, who was Saul, he was born Saul, his his original name, his Hebrew name was Saul, was considered a very influential young man. If you look at his autobiography in Philippians 3, he tells you in some of the ways he was a big deal. He said, I was like pure in blood. I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. What does it mean? He wasn't like a mutt. He wasn't like half and half. He was legit Jew all the way. He was circumcised on the eighth day, he said. Um, he was fully devoted to being a follower of the law and the truth. He explains himself in this way, saying, if there was ever a perfect example of someone who would follow the law, was born as a Benjamite, grew up, was circumcised on the eighth day when I was a child, followed the law, was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I even studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the best known Pharisees of that time. And as far as legalistic righteousness, he said, Following the 613 Hebrew laws, he said, faultless. That's pretty intense. I followed the law 
He said, as for legalistic righteousness, the things that I did to keep me in right standing with God, if you looked at my life, my response to you would be I was faultless. It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? It just gives you a glimpse as to how strong, how intelligent, how committed he was to following God, how educated he was. Most people believe by his 21st, 22nd birthday in that general range, based on the education that he had, that he would have had what we would have considered up to the equivalency of three to four PhDs for a guy that age. And Pharisees, by the way, memorized most of the Old Testament, if not all of the Old Testament. Pretty smart dude. And what is he saying? The power of the gospel. This is where it like wrecks me. He's that strong. He's that powerful in the world's eyes. He's that educated. He understands more about spiritual things than most people could ever imagine. He's viewed in a position of authority and leadership even as a young man studying under some of the greatest teachers that ever walked with Israel. And yet he says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. All of that, he says in Philippians 3, I count as loss, for I'd rather be with Christ as a servant of Christ than to be the master of my own world. You don't get to that place without the power of the gospel, my friends. No way. No way. Think about that. How can you? How could you get to that place without the power of the gospel? Do you know how I know that? I know that because in my own personal life, I don't want to be the servant of anyone. Don't judge me. Some of you think the same way. (laughs) I'm not saying I don't want to help people. I don't want to be kind towards people. Ultimately, the sinful nature inside of me says, I want to be the boss of me. Right? Don't we understand that? I want to be the boss of me. I want to rule my way. I want to go my way. I want to do the thing that matters. I want it to be about me, not about what somebody else tells me to be. And what is going to happen in my life that's going to make me lay that down? I can tell you, you can strong arm me into compliance for a while, but unless my heart changes, I will always come back to where I was before. Look what's happening on our worlds around us. Look what our government tries to do. Look what laws, laws and guidelines around us, they can't change anyone's heart. We use words like rehabilitation and things like that. You can't change anyone's heart. Governments are not intended to change the hearts of people. They're intended to create law and order and guidance, but the heart has to change for the life to be transformed. And that's where the gospel brings power. The Apostle Paul did everything in his own strength. And then he met Jesus. And he calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus. A bondservant who willingly, he said, gives himself to Christ and was called to be an apostle. He was called to be an apostle, set apart by Christ to say, if you are going to be my servant, then you're going to do everything I call you to do. And he put a new stamp on Paul, where Paul used to live for himself, and now he lives for Jesus. You don't get that by just having some interesting epiphany. It's through the gospel that transformed him, and we'll see what that looks like because Paul doesn't just talk about sin and fault and righteousness and justification. He uses his own life experience through the book of Romans to help share how this applies to our lives. So he's not just speaking as, here's the truth, go apply it. He's saying, a lot of what I'm teaching you is stuff that I have already learned, that Jesus has showed me, and it's in that humility 
that transforms him. Do you know the power of the gospel today? We sing these songs like we said earlier, and you know, my heart is encouraged to hear the songs that we sing sometimes about Jesus Christ. You're our, you're our living hope. And oh, you're good, Father. You're good. Oh, you're good. And we sing about these things and we say, do what we sing actually match up how we live? Do what we sing really match up how we live? Or are they disconnected in some way? Going through Romans is going to teach us about sin and how the first place it starts, my goodness, the power of the gospel doesn't start in how much of the Holy Spirit you have in this right moment. Don't get me wrong, we're going to get there when we get to Romans 8 about walking in the Spirit. The power of the gospel begins by recognizing who we are without Jesus. That's where the power begins because he says in the scriptures, it's when I'm weak that God is strong. He doesn't use strong people. He uses weak, submitted people and lifts us up because now it's him working, not us. You with me? It makes sense so far? Okay. The power of the gospel is the heart of the gospel. The second thing I want to mention today briefly is that he also will tell us and talk to us not just about the power of the gospel, but the book of Romans covers the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel. Beginning in verse 2, he says, The gospel... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul's a wordy writer, and he uses lots of words, and, and you'll see if we went to Peter, there'd be things that Peter says like, I don't even understand what he says half the time. And I'm paraphrasing that, but here's what we tell you what I think is really going on here in this situation with the promise of the gospel. What we need to know, and I highlighted the promise, is that the promise of the gospel, he says, was a promise in the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And what were the Holy Scriptures at this time? The Old Testament. So Paul's first saying, there is power in this gospel, and my life is transformed as a result of it. Now I willingly choose to follow Jesus and not my own self. And then the promise of the gospel, he's saying, and by the way, this promise, or this, this power that we have through Christ was God's intent that was spoken of all throughout the Old Testament. The New Testament writings, this Jesus that they begin to follow, this isn't some new epiphany. This is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament always intended from the very beginning. God planned it before you were born. He planned it before Adam was created. From the very beginnings of the earth and the world, he says, Paul says in Ephesians, that God intended the plan of salvation for those that he would choose unto himself. He knew it was going to happen. He knew we would walk away. He knew that we would stray and go our own way. He knew the only solution would be himself, and he orchestrated that from the very beginning because of his love for you and me. How cool is that? That is seriously intentional work right there. That is seriously intentional to think about that it is that cool. And the Old Testament, if you look in the Old Testament, you see this message throughout the Old Testament where God brings his people to him and his people recognize it's impossible to follow this law without failing and failing and failing over and over and over again. There has to be a savior. There has to be a Messiah. There has to be a deliverer. And the rest of the Old Testament, you see the coming Messiah, a deliverer will come. And you see prophets speak about this all through the Old Testament. You see prophecies that are written throughout the Old Testament about a coming Messiah. And the prophecies tell us of his birthplace, where the Messiah will come from. The prophecies tell us of the tribe he'd come from. The prophecies tell us he would be rejected by men. 
that he would be scorned and shamed. The prophecies say he would be born of a virgin, that he would be preceded by Elijah the prophet, that he would be pierced and he would suffer as a penalty for our own sins. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ all of which could never have been orchestrated because they were written many times hundreds, if not over a thousand years apart from each other. And yet the Old Testament, some believe, is divorced from the New Testament truth. That couldn't be anything further from the truth. When Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Today, the law, when he read the scriptures in the synagogue, today, the law is fulfilled in your hearing. This truth is fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying? I am the reason. When you look at your Old Testament deliverer and your Messiah, what you're looking for, here I am. This is who I am. And you know what's so beautiful about that? When Paul looks at that as a man who gave his life and his heart and his soul to study the Old Testament scriptures, he didn't have to give up his past of what he believed as a Hebrew, he simply had to welcome his Messiah into what he already knew. Many times I've heard people say that Jewish people are converted to Christianity. They're not. They're completed. Because what they're looking for and who they're looking for has already been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not one versus the other. It's a completion that happens. And the the, the promise of the gospel tells us that Jesus intentionally knew this would happen and came up with a solution before we ever, ever knew it was needed. Here's why I think this is so important for me. Because if God is that intentional in foreseeing the need for a Savior that only he could do by himself, through himself, for all of mankind, if he is that intentional and that interested in drawing me and you in relationship towards him, can I trust him with what happens in every day of my life? I hope the answer to that is yes. Will he ever really leave me or forsake me? The scripture says he won't. Even when stuff around us gets messy, and how messy is it right now? I mean, this is like a mess, right? I mean, this is like a teenager's room times a thousand right now in 2020. You know, no offense to any of you organized teenagers. All I'm saying, I lived that world when I was a kid. I understand what it looks like, okay? We live in a mess of a world. And if you listen to the wrong voices, what you hear, and I'm talking specifically to to Christians right now, but this applies to anyone if you're looking for something, a root that cannot sway in the midst of storm. The world around us is telling us how crazy everything, how messy everything is, how unbelievably crazy. You know what's going to happen You know, in next month during our election? And if this guy gets in office or if this guy gets in office and if this guy, and what's going to happen? And people are going back and forth. And I don't disagree. That there are better choices than others. I agree with that. But can I tell you, like I said last week, we cannot put our hope and our faith in an individual or a party. Our hope has to be in Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you one thing. Some of the same things people are talking about today, they talked about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And you know what? Man can't fix this. Do you know why? Because we, we messed it up. We can't fix it because we messed it up. God can fix it, not man. So when we're going through struggles, I see it happen on both sides. People are saying, well, it's going to be so much better in November if this candidate gets in versus that. And I just shake my head and I say, yeah, we're going to have a different kind of challenge depending on who gets in office this year. We're going to have division and we're going to have alienation and we're going to have persecution and all of that's going to look different depending on who's pulling the strings. 
And I'm not saying one's better or one, I'm not saying they're both bad. I'm not saying you should pick one or the other. You already know my heart on some of that, what I've talked about. And I'm saying, go to the Lord, pray, fast, seek God. What do I do in an imperfect situation? But keep your eyes on the fact that the promise of the gospel existed well before election day. The promise of the gospel existed well before you and I were ever born or your parents or their parents or their parents or their parents. The promise of the gospel existed thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of years before God ever formed the earth. The gospel was already in God's plan. We can trust that he knows what he's doing. We can trust that God has a plan. And even in the midst of things getting all jacked up and screwed up and I don't know about this or what if this happens to me or my family, I can say, you're good. You're good. He's the king of my heart and he's good. And his goodness never changes. You can trust him because his promise will never fail. The last part of Romans we'll look at over the course of these many months is the practice of the gospel. The practice of the gospel. In verse 5, Paul says this in his introduction. Through him, talking about Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I underlined one thing here that I want you to focus on. The practice of the gospel is how we live. The power of the gospel comes from the resurrected Christ. The promise of the gospel comes from God's intentionality. The practice of the gospel comes from how we live. It refers to how you and I as believers are supposed to live. And it's the last part. It's the last four chapters of Romans. Of the 16 chapters, he only devotes four chapters to how we're supposed to live. This is why this is so significant. Because if we're transformed through the power of the gospel, if we're at peace and we trust because of the promise of the gospel, we should look different through the practice of the gospel. We need to look differently through the practice of the gospel. If we don't look differently, is the power real in our hearts? If I'm not living differently, is there any genuine transformation in my life? If I look just like everyone else, what's God been doing or not been doing in my life? The practice of the gospel is about obedience that comes from faith. And this is what I think is important to understand. We understand obedience, but our definition of obedience or our root of obedience doesn't always come from faith. That's actually a little bit of a foreign concept to me. Obedience from faith, what does that mean? No, I obey because the law says I obey. Right? Why do we follow the speed limit? (laughs) Or do we? Why do we follow the speed limit? Because the law says you're supposed to follow the speed limit. Why do I honor God? Because I've been trained up in the way that a child should go, and when I depart from him, I won't ever leave it, because I was instructed into obedience. And there's an element of knowledge and instruction that we're supposed to have to obey. There's an element of behavior modification due to laws. But Paul doesn't use either one of these things to say the root of your obedience as a follower of Christ are those things. The root of your obedience is not based on the law. It's not based on behaviors or um, anything else but faith. What does that mean? Well, if you want to be changed, if I find myself wanting to be changed to look more like Jesus, there is this tug of war that we're going to read about in Romans chapter 7 that Paul talks about. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I want to do. And he just, it's like this back and forth. And I think some of us would understand that. It's that little tapping on our shoulder of temptation. 
to say, you might know Jesus, but you could still do this. And it's not necessarily God honoring, but it's fun. It's called temptation, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Temptation, right? Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're not a believer. Just because you sin doesn't mean you're not a believer. But the obedience that comes from faith, what I think he's saying here is when we understand what Christ did on the cross, we can stand on that truth in faith and we can deal with our sin face to face and not up and down like a roller coaster or go around like a merry-go-round. Here's what I mean. Colossians 2, 3 through 14 says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins and canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What does my faith say about sin in my life? You know what faith says about sin in my life? Faith says Jesus killed it on the cross. That's what my faith is supposed to say, you guys. Jesus killed it on the cross. Any of you like mafia, mob buffs, or you hear the stories of people that are like part of the family, and then one of them like disowns the family or like betrays the family, and like one of the big guys get up to them and they see them and they go, you know, like, I want you to know you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You know, see, like those kind of, you ever heard that phrase? You're dead to me, right? I don't want to see you anymore. You're dead to me. You know, like that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? When they say that, what are they saying to that family member? You're dead to me means what? It means we have no relationship anymore. There is no bond. We will never be in community with each other ever again. I am not obligated to be with you ever again. There is a separation that cannot be repaired. And yet when we look at this message in Colossians chapter 3, chapter 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, in faith, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he took sin and he nailed it to the cross. So when we look at our sin today, do we say, I know I struggle with sin and I'm going to try harder and I'm just going to try harder and I'm going to try harder and I fail and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to try harder and I fail? Or do we stop and we say, no, I'm going to be obedient to the work of the gospel in my life because in faith, my gospel says my sin is dead to me. It has no relationship in my life. It has no hold on my life anymore. It has no bearing. It can't control me. I am dead to that old way of life and I can move with a passion moving forward that sin no longer has a grip and a hold on me anymore. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He goes, we have to change our thinking so that we don't just say, well, we're, we're followers of Jesus, but we still live in the world and there's still some chains and stuff. No, there's no more chains. The only chains that we still put on right now in this world are the ones that we allow. Because obedience by faith says, I can choose to walk through the power of faith to say, sin, when you come knocking on my door, I can look at you and say, you're dead to me. <laughs> Get out. Because Jesus paid the price on the cross. Because Jesus defeated the power of sin. And oh, death, where is your sting, as the psalmist says. And I don't need to be a slave to sin anymore. I can walk in righteousness by trusting in what he did and making the choice. And this is where it comes down to the choice. Paul said, I'm a bondservant of Christ. We have to choose every day to say, you know what? Why do I still like to sin sometimes? Or I'm sorry, why do I still sin sometimes? Is it because we're a slave to sin? Or is it because we like it? 
And it's not because we're a slave to sin. It's because we welcome it back into our lives. Paul teaches us through this gospel that you can be victorious over sin. Not because of what you do, but by putting your faith in the one who already killed it. And that's Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come as we get ready to close today. And can I just ask you to take a few moments this morning, quiet your hearts, and consider what this series could look like for you. Maybe do a personal spiritual evaluation on your own life. Maybe, maybe you're walking with God and you're excited to get on board with this and, and this is a great experience for you that you know is going to happen and that's wonderful. But maybe you have bits, big gaps and pieces in your life that you don't understand and your faith doesn't make sense because of these holes and, and you're looking for what is this passage going to say or what's this pastor going to tell you or maybe you're just looking for some answers. I really believe in my heart that if we devote ourselves to the word and we trust in what God wants to do in us and through us, through his word, we will come out very different believers. And for those who begin the journey that aren't believers, I don't think it's possible to read the book of Romans with an open heart and not walk out a follower of Christ. When we see who we are without Christ and we see what Jesus has done for us, it all begins to make sense. Some people can listen to this message and say, well, it's just a man-made religion though, Paul. I mean, it's man-made. So why are you saying that? Some people believe that about Christianity. And you know what I would say to that? I would say if there were a bunch of men that actually architected our faith the way it is, then they're really misguided and mental because the Christian faith says that we can't live for ourselves. Our religion says someone is greater than us, says that we are incapable of saving ourselves and the solution to our failure and our sin can be found in only one way. Who would architect that type of faith? If man architected it, it would look very different than that. But yet Jesus did. And he gives us the option to be rooted in the gospel through the power, through his promise, and walk it out in our practice. If you would just bow your heads with me for a moment. And I first want to just ask anyone that might be listening to this that is not a follower of Christ or maybe is just on the fence, would you take a few moments and do a personal inventory this morning of your life and ask yourself, how capable do you feel that you've been in fixing and solving the mess that you deal with or the messes that you've walked through? What kind of peace do you walk with in your heart on a daily basis? I'm not saying the Christian life is a life that doesn't have any anxiety or stress. That's, that's not accurate. But when all of the smoke settles and everything fades, the rock of Jesus Christ still stands. And if you don't have that rock in your life, then your footing is at risk. So if you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, I want to encourage you. Take a few moments. Make a decision to follow Jesus today. Recognize your sinfulness and say, even though if I don't understand, recognize that your inability to, to fix your situation is where all of us began before we became followers of Christ. We trust in him and he helps us along the way and takes it from there. And for the rest of us, can we just do a personal inventory as we get ready to close the service today? 
just reflect on his goodness. Earlier I said that one of the ways I've grown closer or I think we grow closer spiritually to God is is by focusing and recognizing on who we are without God and what sin has done. But can I tell you, that's not where God wants us to dwell. He wants us to see the separation, but he wants us to embrace his goodness. He wants us to embrace his trust. He wants us to embrace his comfort and his care and his love. And he wants to say right now, you may be weary and you may be tired, but I'm bigger. You may be concerned about what's happening around you, but I will give you a firm foundation to stand on. You may be just flat out discouraged and depressed, but can I tell you, in my presence, there's fullness of joy. Walk closer to me and watch what I can do in you. Because he's good and he's faithful and we can make that decision again today as we do every other day. Father, I just pray today that our hearts would be open that your gospel would transform our lives and that we would experience the living power of the good news of Jesus Christ because you're good and you're worthy of everything we do. In your name we pray.